<laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, so I just thought uh, I would start by just saying a few words about you, and then we could jump right into the questions, if that works. Okay, that's good. Um, cool. Jennifer, just so that you know, I'm dialing in on my uh, wireless network because I can't use Skype on the wired network. Uh, after about 50 minutes, I think it will drop the line. So if I suddenly disappear, just hold fire and I'll dial back into you. Perfect. Okay. All right. Um, so, Dave Patton, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're head of new media at the Science Museum in London. Um, you have a background in electronics and computer science and have worked at the Science Museum for, I'm just going to say a very long time because I had yep. a hard time <laughs> figuring out the exact date you started. Um, uh, you're responsible for the team that develops and commissions all of the public-facing IT and AV in the Science Museum, is that yep. correct? That's Including right. the interactive exhibit. Um, so you worked on the Welcome Wing and the Data Center and, of course, the Web Lab most recently, um, in which Google collaborated with the Science Museum to develop uh, an exhibition which online visitors and on-site visitors were engaging with each other as well as our on-site science experiments. That's right. So um, you've been, as I said, at the Science Museum for a very long time and been responsible for a variety of types of projects. Um, and so uh, to start with, I hope you could elaborate a little bit, um, comment on how your museum's approach to putting content on the web has changed over that time and uh, what you think has helped drive that change. Okay. So, so first off, I should say I'm not responsible, uh, although I have been in the past, I'm not currently responsible for the websites. That's a different okay. group museum, although I helped put content onto the web, and I can certainly give you some, some sort of history of, of, of what's happened. Um, as with lots of big museums and new technology, I guess, um, a lot of these things start out by being developed and run by a group of people who are enthusiastic about the technology in the museum. Um, and the same was, was certainly true of the web. I mean, we we uh, I can remember the first time I saw the World Wide Web, we were uh, taken across to Imperial College to a small, uh, um, one of the lecturer's staff rooms to have a look at something. Um, and a small group of us, probably half a dozen, looked, looked at a set of web pages and we thought, well, there's, there's something really interesting here, but we're kind of not sure what it is and where this is going to go. Um, but we started to do a bit of research and started to do some playing. Uh, and there's a great um, newsletter from the Science Museum, which I think was from, I might need to check the dates and get back to you. I think it was kind of 93, 94, when the museum had just put its first web page up for the public. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a note in the, in the newsletter that went round with that. And amongst other things, it that by the end of the year, we hope to have six web pages about Good the morning. Science Museum. And that would Hi, this is, sorry, this is just one of, some additional person joining us. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Hi. Go ahead. You're talking about, um, Dave was just talking about the, the beginnings of, of the web uh, at the museum. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the, the newsletter said that by the end of that year, we hope to have six web pages about the Science Museum that would tell all of our visitors everything they ever needed to know about the museum. Um, and, and, you know, now we have tens of thousands of web pages and we still don't tell our visitors everything they want to know about the museum um, and we're probably never going to be able to do Are you still there? Oh, you're fading out he might... Ah, he's going to be calling back um... Hi, this uh, Rachel who was on, or oh, this is Soli. Oh, hi, Soli. <laughs> hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, we were just talking a bit before we started that um, Dave is uh, having to go through a wireless system to call in um, because the he can't use Skype on the wired system, so th there may be a couple dropped calls, and he'll be calling back in. Um, oh, okay. Throughout the Great. interview. So just before he comes back on, I I wanted to talk to you just 
take this opportunity. I haven't been able to access the comments. Do I need to download the the big idea paper? Is that the way I should access that? Oh, um, I I don't know. This is uh, Jennifer who's actually oh, running Jennifer, the interview. Sorry. It's not. Yeah, it's quite all right. Um, Dana's not I running the coffee. Interview. It's so bad. <laughs> it's sorry quite all right. <laughs> not a problem. So I think you should probably send her a quick email uh, about I wish, that. I, did. I don't know if she's going to be able to join us. Okay. Well, this is exciting. I think you're the first student that's actually doing the interviews, right? I think so. So. We'll okay. see how it goes. I think it's going to be interesting to. In fact, I should have turned off the recording maybe and started it again, <laughs> so we're not recording all of our. Yeah. Apparently, the system is telling him that they're offline. This might be the the Skype issue that Dana was talking about. Okay. Well, whenever now that you're recording, since I'm at work, I'm I'll be muting. My phone, okay. I can listen, but you won't hear everything that's going okay. on at the office. Okay, perfect. I'll see from the console that you're there. But. <laughs> right, and then just let me know when it's open for questions or do you need me to talk or do anything, okay. and then I'll just unmute and then participate. Okay. Dave Patton. Hi, great. So you were able to get Hi. back on. Yeah, I've dialed in on a, on a, a phone rather than on Skype. It's still telling me Skype is uh, the system is offline. Okay. So you're calling from a, a landline. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. All right. So we were just um, touching on sort of how the Science Museum's approach to putting content on the web might have changed, or to technology in general, if you want to comment more broadly, has changed over time. And, and you had mentioned that you know, when you started and were first exposed to the web, you had this vision as a museum that you were going to be able to have six web pages and push all the content yep. online and give the visitors everything they wanted. And now you have tens of thousands of web pages. And still aren't sure, or, or in fact, it sounds like you're pretty convinced that the visitors still want more, and you're never going to quite be able to meet that demand. I, I mean, I think that there are kind of two things with that. I think um, visitors, all, visitors want different kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, and that's always a challenge for the museum to know what you're actually going um, to say about all of the things you have. And there are millions of stories we could tell about everything in the museum and it's finding the stories that people want to, to hear. Um, I think what we're, what we're increasingly seeing as well is that people aren't necessarily coming to museum websites to get the content. So increasingly it's not just about content on our websites, it's where we place that content on other people's websites. So mm. you know, it's putting videos up on YouTube, it might be doing partnerships with people like the BBC to put our content on the BBC. It might be making sure that entries of things that the museum has are um, up to date and reflected on Wikipedia, um, because that's where people are going to probably going to get to our content rather than directly through the museum website. Mm. That's so interesting. So you think how users are aiming to get content is not really through institutional providers, but rather through their normal kind of more maybe social I, media would be a good way to characterize it. I mean, I, I, personally, I think there's the, I think that's true. I think there's a bit of an issue with museum websites that. And we all seem to have gone down roughly the same route and have got to the same place. Um, and that it, it's kind of fine if people can find on your website and, and they've come to your website, they can find that content. But when you, when you search for something, a museum website isn't really the first place, you know, in lots of instances that you go to, to find something out. Um, you know, you're, you're probably going to do a Google search and the museum may or may not be the top of the search list that comes back. Um, so if people if people are finding you know people are being pushed off through Wikipedia or another website, perhaps we should try and get our content reflected in those websites so that people see our content. And ultimately, it's not important where they see our, our content. Uh -huh. What's important is they see the content, they recognise that it's from the Science Museum. Mm. 
So does that then change how you conceive of, of the role of your home institutional website? I mean, I, for example, um, you developed uh, in well, your museum developed in partnership with Google an online exhibit, um, yeah. which uh, it. I mean, would you could you imagine something like that being hosted outside of the institution? Or I mean, that seems to well. Be a I mean, WebLab itself was host. I mean, it was you know that was hosted across a variety of platforms doing different things. So the okay. um, the actual core software that ran WebLab um, ran on servers um, uh, with a web agency, but some of those services are run through some Google services. Uh, the mm. YouTube channel to WebLab were owned by the museum. Um, so it was. It basically existed on lots of different platforms, all working together to deliver the experience. Um, okay. And WebLab really, for I think for for all of us, was a very experimental project. Mm -hmm. um, and it was looking at how do you start to join up the uh, in museum experience with the online experience in a, in a more meaningful um, meaningful way. And what happens when uh, you, you, in effect, build a space that's shared between physical visitors to a museum and online visitors. And it sounds like these online visitors are not just online visitors to the museum, but in fact, online users in general, because you're working through a variety of sites to build a total experience. Which yeah, so I mean, the, the, the big difference in WebLab is that WebLab is a series of physical installations in the museum right. Right. that you could come to as a museum visitor and you could directly interact with. If you went online to WebLab, you interacted again with those same physical installations in the museum. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you were in, you were, you were virtually in the museum, co-inhabiting the space with visitors who had gone to the museum. So it wasn't about building virtual versions of these experiments. You were interacting with physical, um, mechanical exhibits in the museum, and everything. There were 27 live streaming cameras that were sending video streams out of the space. Um, so that you could basically see that direct interaction. So if you were playing a musical instrument, you were actually activating a real physical music, musical instrument in the Science Museum, mm -hmm. and the visitors mm -hmm. in the museum could hear that instrument being played by somebody online and actually see the physical instrument being played. And as an online user, you could, again, you could see that instrument being played and you could see video that was streamed out of the space that so you could see all of the other instruments being played within that space. Yeah, as you as you say, this is a very novel and experimental um, concept. Um, and we, in fact, we read a little bit about the project, um, your paper uh, that you gave at the museums and the web conference. Yeah. And um, you noted towards the end of that paper that um, the museum was in the process of doing some uh, formal in museum uh, evaluations yep. of, in, of the experience. And I also imagine that. Um, you uh, were able to trace uh, something about the web use or the web interaction with this. Okay, so uh, yes and yes, and we're still we're still doing that. I mean, as you can imagine, okay. there was a huge amount of data yeah. uh, that we gathered. So uh, we did we did in museum evaluation. The the um, web experience evaluation was actually managed by Google, and what we're okay. doing now is uh, putting those numbers together and trying to read across that story uh, and part of the challenge of that is just working out the granularity that you need to understand the kinds of things that were happening in the space mm -hmm. so you, you, you kind of need to look at uh, when, when a group of people were in the space where were the people from online what were the people what were the people who are currently uh, online at that particular time what were they doing uh, right. were the groups aware of each other so were the visitors in the museum aware that they were in a space that, that people online were interacting in as well. And the same for the online visitors. Did they, did they recognize um, that, that there were people in a physical space? Or in, indeed, did they recognize that actually they were interacting with real physical things in a physical space? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, there's quite a lot of number crunching still, still going on with that. So we have, um, we have an initial report uh, about the physical space. Um, and what we're trying to do is, is sort of delve into the data that's behind that report because the report is um, is a very positive report um, and that's that's very gratifying but we're that we need to understand the things that didn't work as well as the things that did 
um, which means digging in, into a lot of detail into that evaluative data. Yeah. So without you know um, being able to explain the full report since it's still in process, are there yeah. any kinds of trends or notes that um, you know, seem the, to be the major trends have come out of uh, you know uh, the, the ones that we have the, the sort of real detail on the, uh, the museum experience and and. Uh, it's, it's you know kind of all sorts of things. I mean, the dwell time for a museum experience was was long. So the, the average dwell time in the exhibition was 18 minutes. So that's mm -hmm. um, one of the highest average dwell, dwell times in an exhibition we have in the museum. Mm -hmm. um, and whilst that doesn't sound very long to be in an exhibition, um, when when you think about the way people are in a museum, a lot of time they're just transitioning from one space to another, which really pulls the average dwell time down. Um, we found that. Um, the the as you would expect the longer that that people spent in the space the more useful they found the experience the more educational they found the experience um, certainly the majority of visitors that were coming into the space were learning things they didn't know before they came into the exhibition um, it hit its target audience uh, the numbers were you know spectacularly good for an exhibition and we were open for just over a year. Uh, in just over a year, we had 580,000 physical visitors to the exhibition. Um, 6.7 million people visited the exhibition online, um, and they together they made just over six million digital artifacts. So that's videos, pieces of music, pictures, um, and and generated a huge amount of social network uh, commentary on the exhibition as well. Um, do you have a kind of a sense of that commentary, the social network commentary? It's, I mean, that's quite a hard, that's quite a hard thing, and that's probably going to be one of the things that takes the most time to dig into. Mm -hmm. Partly because all of the experiences, when you generated digital artifacts, gave you the opportunity to tweet or Facebook about them or Google Plus about right. them. Um, so that's a kind of semi-automatic. Um, piece of commentary and it's kind of interesting because you, you see the things that were made but it doesn't give you that detail of feedback about what right. the experience was like for people and to try and make that automatic experience not too samey there were, there were quite a large number of pre-programmed um, responses that happened as part of that so it's trying to filter all of that out and work out mm. what the, the kind of new stuff in there is that, that can tell us something about how people were interacting with the exhibition mm -hmm. okay so maybe it makes sense to move to thinking a little bit or asking about the, the production side of the exhibit. Yep. Um, so uh, with, uh, you know, now that the exhibit ran for the full year, you're in the process of doing the evaluation, you've yep. got a little bit of a benefit of hindsight. Um, I was wondering whether you would have done anything differently um, with WebLab, in particular because, you know, I, I saw on the website that the source code for the core experience of the lab has been made available. Yep. Um, and so I imagine there are going to be other institutions interested in trying this experience. So I guess I'm looking for kind of lessons learned um, and what advice you might give to anyone interested in, in pursuing this kind of experiment. Um, I, I guess, firstly, the, the intention of putting the source code online wasn't necessarily for people to, um, to build a version of WebLab. Okay. And I think you'd be quite hard pushed to do that. I mean, it's not. It certainly wasn't an easy thing to do, and it certainly wasn't a cheap thing to do. I think it's. It was. The intention more is really they are uh, masterclasses in HTML5 coding, mm -hmm. um, which was one of the aims of the exhibition to show that you can do very very complex things directly within the browser. Um, and these are just great examples of the kind of complex things you can do. So, how do you build multi? You know, how do you synchronize multi-user experiences? Um, how do you do complex graphics with, directly within a browser without plugins? So, we think one or two people will, will build uh, versions of those exhibits. Okay. Um, but really, the real value is in just making that source code available to help people when they're thinking about other kinds of museum and exhibition experiences, how they might approach that problem. Um, so one of the things we're doing around that, and now the source code is available, we are in the process of trying to set some hack days up with developers to uh, look at how, we, how people might start to use that code in interesting ways. Okay. Did that make sense? Uh, yes. 
it, I mean, in, it, in terms it, of the it, development, it was more I mean, as a model was, rather than a specific. Um, I think so. I mean, I think there will be people that make uh, that make exhibits, um, uh-huh. but it's it's. Uh, I guess it's it's still not for the faint-hearted. I mean, you know, to, to build those as they were in WebLab, they're, they're multi-user installations that need a lot of bandwidth um, uh, and, and server activity to make them happen, mm-hmm. um, which limits the number of museums probably that would have the, the know-how to do that or the mm-hmm. funding available to allow them to do that. And it sounds like that was it was a very intensive development process. Um, it was... It was Yes, it was. I mean, and it was quite a different way of working for the museum. So the original proposal came to us from Google and um, Telart, who were an interaction design company from Rhode Island they'd been working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they approached the museum um, for two things, really. One was to see if we'd be a hosting venue for this exhibition, mm-hmm. and then to see if we'd join them as a partner to add a museum perspective to what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, which which is what we did. So so we joined to add knowledge of um, the way our audience responds to this kind of thing, the, the sort of learning activities that need to go around this to make it a valuable learning experience, and just the general knowledge we have about what makes a great exhibition. Mm. Um, and then gradually during the course of the project, more partners are brought on um, to do particular things or brought on particular expertise. So. Uh, Be Real, who are a large international web agency, were brought on to do um, quite a bit of the back-end work and to do the website. Um, Universal Design Studio were brought on as a 3D designer. We brought on 2D designers. Uh, we brought on exhibit fabricators and system integrators. So at the end of the project, it was actually quite a large team working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite an iterative process. Uh, mm-hmm. So... Google and Telart came to us with the outline for five ideas. We spent some time working with them and refined those ideas, um, and then Telart built prototypes of all of them. Um, and we were really fortunate that the Museum of Science in Boston allowed us over um, two weekends to put them on the floor, put these prototypes on the floor of the museum, and run some uh, proper evaluation. So we brought in a professional evaluation company from North America and ran the prototypes for two weekends to look at what worked and what didn't. And mm. um, and then we went away and did quite a lot of thinking about that. And certainly a couple of the exhibits changed quite dramatically in light of that work. Mm. Um, and, then the re- and then we basically had a period of build and development, I guess, um, with constant critiquing by the team. And then the other thing that was unique for the museum is when we opened, we opened the whole exhibition in beta, um, so we opened to the public with working versions of all of the all of the exhibits, and then over a, about a six week period, we did some fairly intensive work, both in the museum and online, um, looking at how people were using the the exhibits and how people were using the exhibition as a whole, and making changes both to the software and to the physicality of the exhibition space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was everything from um, changes on screen to you know layout of buttons and, and areas of activity on screen through to uh changing uh, swapping around the entrance and exit to the museum because it made more sense to the people that were coming to the exhibition for it to operate that way around mm. um and so i think that that was a really big thing for us we'd never done that there was certainly some nervousness on the part of the museum when uh, it was proposed it was quite a late proposed quite late in the day to do this um and what we realised when we started doing it is, of course, we, we as a museum are very good at evaluating all of the individual things that go into an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not very good, or, or find, you know, it's very difficult because we open an exhibition and the project team all goes off and does other things uh, to evaluate the whole exhibition and then be able to make substantial changes to the exhibition in light of that evaluation. Um, so, so not only could we evaluate the individual experiences, but we could evaluate how those experiences work together and how people move through the space and what made sense for the visitors, both online and in museums. So are there aspects of this experience um, uh, of working in this kind of non-traditional museum way, opening with a beta, being able to sort of revise the whole project as you went, I mean, even turning around? I mean, it's certainly something we're having quite a lot of internal discussion around. I mean, I think we, yeah. we could see some real value in it. I think yeah. we probably wouldn't call it opening in beta, but but what it has made us much more aware of is actually 
um, probably trying to find ways to keep more money back um, to do some some fairly immediate post-opening works to an exhibition and tying that in with a lot of visitor evaluation and questionnaires. Mm. Um, so I think there, there is definitely something we'd like to see more of in our practice. We're just working out practically how we might do that. Mm. And as you can imagine, that means sort of potentially changing quite a lot of systems that have been in place in the museum for quite a long time. Yeah, well, and, and very much changing the relationship between the visitor and the museum if, yep. uh, you know, there's an understanding well, it, that the museum product is always in process, the way we as professionals understand it, but the visitor the public doesn't always. I, I mean, I think there are several things about that. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you could say that actually exhibitions are, are only ever beta, then they're they're never you know finished multiple manufactured product they're they're kind of you know frozen development in time mm. uh, from a visitor perspective we already knew that our visitors love to take part in evaluation so they love to see prototypes even very early prototypes of exhibits and feel that they're part of that process for shaping that for other visitors mm. so the feedback that we get from our visitors around that is actually they feel quite privileged to be part of that process mm. Um, you know, particularly if we take time to explain what, what it is they're going to do. And, and yeah, hopefully they'll come back and see the finished thing and they can see where they help make a difference to that. Mm. So it can, it can be a very positive thing. Um, it also means that the visitors get a uh, one-on-one interaction with staff, again, which mm. we know helps to make for a very satisfying visit for, for people. Mm. That's very interesting. Um, uh, so, as part of this, I mean, it, it sounds like the visitor engagement in this exhibition went really beyond just engaging sort of on-site and online visitors together, also engaging them in understanding the web by using these so, new, So we had different, exciting... I mean, one is it was a staffed exhibition, and we took the decision to staff it um, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, partly, the, you know, the, the concept was complex, and we felt that people uh-huh. may need some assistance in, in making right. best use of it. Um, but also, it l- allowed us to layer additional content into the exhibition. So mm. uh, the staff could run other demos around each of the exhibits that deepened understanding or deepened the learning around an exhibit. So the exhibits uh-huh. all were designed to give one or two quite simple messages because the, the subject is so complex. And then with um, staffed demonstrations around that, you could you could take people that were interested slightly deeper into into all of that. So that was one one thing. We also saw um, some really interesting behaviour by by visitors. And there was one particular school who the museum has worked with, our learning department has worked with in the past, um, and we did quite a big piece of work with them about uh, making science more engaging. Um, mm-hmm. for teachers and looking at how they could use the museum as a resource and the it's a primary school in North London so it's uh, um, 7 to 11 year old children and they the children came to see WebLab and were really really excited and inspired by it which was what we'd always hoped WebLab would be um, and they went back and, and basically the school decided they would send all of their um, nine and ten year olds in the school to web lab and they all came and visited over about a week and they filmed everything and they filmed themselves in the space and then they had a project which lasted a term in the school so for about three months three and a half months where they built their own version of web lab and this is the kit this is children so this is nine and ten year old children built a version of web lab so they obviously couldn't build what we had in a museum, but what they found were lots of software tools and pieces of software where they could build approximations of this. So they were using Skype to do video conferencing. Um, they were using some really nice um, apps to do uh, to build an orchestra with, um, where people could make music and collaborate together. So they did this over over about three and a half months, and then they opened the school up for a week uh, to the local community and to the rest of the school to come and see this web lamp they built. Wow. And it was absolutely astonishing. I mean, you know, it was not led by the teachers. It was absolutely led by the children. The children did all of the work. The teachers just facilitated that. Um, an amazing piece of work. And then the teachers published on as an iBook basically how it was done. So there's a really nice piece of documentation on what the children did and how they did it. 
Um, and for really, us, that was I mean, a, yeah. a really, really successful form of engagement. And it's certainly, um, it's a way where we can, we really like to work with schools on a, um, to, to get a much deeper working relationship with the museum. I'm almost afraid to ask the next question because it sounds like you have already pushed the sort of frontier of, of online exhibits and visitor engagement with this project. Is, is there a next frontier? What are some of the next things you would like to do in terms of engaging visitors online and on site? Um, <laughs> how long have you got? I mean, I think it's what you know, what we're fortunate in being able to do. We're a big museum you know, that, that's relatively, you know, in the great scheme of things, relatively well-funded. Or, or we certainly find it relative, you know, uh, we certainly attract quite a lot of sponsorship into the museum, which allows us to do big things. Um, part of what we've always done is a, is a, a level of experimentation um, to push um, uh, museology, exhibition design, exhibit design, um, engagement forward. Uh, and I, you know, I've been involved in, in quite a large number of projects over the last 20 odd years that are doing that. Um, so I have a kind of list of things that, that I'm really interested in doing. I'm really interested in um, in things like Google Glass, in using uh, location-based systems within the museum. Um, I'm really interested in what happens when uh, the there are other voices in the museum. So you know, when you have, which is becoming increasingly common, people coming into the museum with smartphones, again... It, it won't just be our content that gets consumed on those devices. Um, so what is the content? Where does our voice sit within that landscape of content? Um, we've done some uh, some research on the kinds of devices people are bringing to museums and what their expectations are in museums. And unsurprisingly, their expectation is to be able to do the things they're already doing. So they're not that interested in museums making new platforms for them to do things with. Mm -hmm. They expect to be able to use the platforms they're comfortable with and use all the time, so you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, standard web searching, to do things in the museum. Um, less interested in having custom-made apps that they need to download and do things with, although we're doing some work around that. The evidence seems to suggest that people are already doing very creative things on their mobile devices, and they expect to find opportunities in museums to allow them to carry on doing that. Um, so what we're beginning to think about is how do we create those opportunities in the space? What do those opportunities look like? Mm. Um, um, so and, that's and, very interesting because it kind of circles back to what you said at the top about sort of, allow, sort of having your content available places where your visitor already is rather than... Yeah forcing them to go to your site. Now, one of the things that was very different about WebLab in that sense uh, than from what you, it sounds like you're describing is that there was a, a, a kind of a social group that the potential to create a social group for online visitors and on-site visitors, yep. whereas if you're walking around a museum with your smartphone, I, I think a lot of museums are concerned that visitors then only engage with their phones and devices and, and, and that's a huge and worry and you know, it's one of the things that I, that I um, air frequently in the museum that we, we're this is this is beginning to happen in museums people are bringing these devices in they expect to be able to use them in the ways that even in other places um, there are some very seductive reasons that museums might want to encourage that behavior but we need to be really really careful museums are or have always been very social spaces. People visit in groups and actually the social interaction is really, really important. Mm. And we we run the risk if we're not careful of stopping of doing things that stop that happening and actually changing quite you know, in potentially quite a negative way the nature of a museum visit. So, you know, again we're we're thinking very carefully about what is the nature of that social experience and actually are there things that if you have mobile devices, actually, just do you just transition that social experience onto a different platform? Do you become social in a different way? Do you need to provide mechanisms to encourage people to be social when they're on their mobile phones? Um, because almost certainly we can't stop people using their mobile phones right. in museums. But it, but it is, um, it is a worry that you may change the nature of the, you know, what's been a very successful way to visit museums. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't have any answers for that beyond saying we are 
we are aware that's an issue and we're doing a lot of thinking around how we alleviate that from being an issue and actually whether yeah perhaps there are some really positive things about the use of mobiles where um you become social you can become social beyond the walls of the museum mm. yeah what that was that certainly mean? very true with web labs I mean, yeah or you know if you look if you look further forward into the future where you know if, if wearable computers become much more common you know and google glass or whatever you know becomes the the device that that, that solves the problems with that where you have that, you can certainly see, um, you know, in the not too distant future, um, the possibilities of somebody visiting the museum, perhaps with a group of people who aren't in the museum, and be able to broadcast that visit out to people and actually have a, a social engagement with people that can't visit, who can then um, direct and share that experience. Mm. And in terms of, you know, broadening reach, uh, that could be really, really interesting. You know, that doesn't have a comparable model in museum. Mm. And is there, is there stuff like that going on in the private sector, uh, or or that kind of trend that the managers to? I don't. I mean, I think because those those sort of products are still so new, um, okay. I'm I'm guessing people are going to be thinking about it and people are going to be starting to experiment around it. But it doesn't seem to be anything that's that's currently really doing that. In in a, I guess the, the difference is at the point where you're wearing something it becomes much less obtrusive. So it's not like you're lugging a big video camera with a, right. um, you know, a wireless connection back to a transmitter. Uh, right. It's just something you happen to have on, and it's, you know, you, so you can have a, um, you know, a much less obtrusive experience. I think that's kind of coupled by the, the worry that we're seeing increasingly around things like that, the whole issue about privacy. So you know, do you want to be filmed by other people as part of that experience? What happens when people are doing that in public spaces? Right. And does, does, I mean, maybe for a science museum it's a little bit less of a concern, but would questions of copyright come in also? If now your visitors can also... I mean, I think your you're right, less less for science museums. I think we, you know, we have, um, like all museums, we've been to that thing where we got very possessive about digital imagery and, and mm-hmm. were worried that if we didn't protect it, people would just use it. Yeah. I think the way that's perceived now is actually the more people that see and use our imagery for non-commercial purposes the easier it is to commercialize the activity because if people have never seen it, they won't know it, it exists um so now um wherever possible our content goes out on uh, under a creative commons license mm-hmm. um so it's free to use for non-commercial purposes mm-hmm. and it needs to be attributed uh, and we're hoping that more people will see that and then want to use that in other ways that are commercial. And the ultimately for the for UK museums or big museums like our museum, we are funded partly funded by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the uh, public in the UK have paid for this stuff already. So why should they pay for it again? And why should they right. be denied access to it? Particularly when you think that we're in we're in central London, and a large part of our audience in the UK probably lives within 50 or 60 miles of central London. Um, but we're funded by everybody that lives in England. Um, mm-hmm. So why shouldn't they have access to all of our content? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So moving on to sort of a different set of questions, um, are there other trends that you see happening in the for-profit world that engage people online that you'd like to see museums consider more maybe not just not specifically your museum but in general that you think museums are kind of behind on or or should start thinking about uh uh yeah millions of things and it's um what's your top three <laughs> try i mean it's uh, i get i i mean sort of so some easy things i mean much better use of video i think you know we're not great at using video we're getting much better but um we've still got a way to go so that's for the less interactive consumption um just to get great video content out to people um i think uh there is a place for apps in museums i'm not sure that very many museums have cracked good apps for museums and i think that's partly because they often confuse um, or not not confused. I think people often get, uh, when they see a new technology like that, it's quite often driven out of marketing departments who see it as an opportunity to make money. Um, mm-hmm. And when you look at the numbers on apps, 
actually most companies that make apps probably aren't making any money. They're probably losing money. Um, but but as a way to get our message and our content out to uh, you know new visitors, new people to experience the museum, I think that's uh, you know that's really really important. I think um, museums aren't always very good at partnering with other museums and sharing things, and I think that you know that's something increasingly happens in the private sector. You know whether that's within a multinational company sharing with themselves or sharing technologies across companies. And, and I think there are certainly things we could learn from uh, from there. You know, people might come to a science museum to see, um, you know, to see an, an exhibition on a particular aspect of science. Uh, there may be a comparable show in a fine art museum that's looking at the, the that's looking at something very similar. We don't always make those cross connections because sometimes we worry that our visitors might go somewhere else. And I mm. think we need to be much more generous of spirit and encourage people to have cultural experiences and, and we'd hope that lots of those would be in our museum um, but we should help drive people to other museums as well. Mm-hmm. Those are some, <laughs> that's a good good list there. <laughs> um, I mean I think yeah the other thing we, you know this uh, the web lab was a, was a great case in point that increasingly with this sort of technological uh, development we live in a global society so you don't need to worry that your developers are, you know, live in the same town as you, the same city as you. It doesn't matter if they're in the same country. They can be in a different continent. Um, right. And actually, sometimes being in a different continent can be really, really useful in terms of speeding up development cycle. Mm. Um, you know, I think I can work with developers in, you know, West Coast mm. America, um, and they can be developing software during their day, and they can upload a new iteration of that when they finish work. And then when I get into work and I can do my crit while they're in bed, um, and then you know they we we basically compress two days into one, um, so there there can be some real advantages in in doing uh, you know doing that working. Yeah, without putting words in your mouth, it sounds like what you're saying is we're already so connected, and in a way, putting your institution, capitalizing as an institution on that connection. Yep. In fact, drive more connections back to your museum. As much as you're connecting to another museum or connecting to others online as well as on site and these visitors are then connecting to other visitors <laughs> that may be present or not. I, I think it's it, there are kind of you know, different avenues of that. So one is you know, is um is a visitor focused thing. So, you know, one of the things we were interested in Web Lab that allow, it allowed us to do was to open up the museum twenty four hours a day to people from anywhere in the world. So, you know, huge new untapped audience for a single institution and let us look at you know what are the problems of doing that so when you build an exhibition it has to be running 24 hours a day how do you maintain it mm. you, know, you don't have any downtime to get in and do any work so it has to be ultra reliable and you have to have systems that deal with any failures um, in a graceful way so that you can get in and do things when when you know things fail and people are still in the exhibition online um, institutionally it had some issues that it's running 24 hours a day in the institution, um, and some of that, some of those things are making a noise. So um, we couldn't have any corporate hire events happening in the museum near to that space because it could affect um, corporate hire events. Mm-hmm. So there are some public-facing things, but then there are also some institutional things. You know, all of these tools that allow us to do great things for our public, allow us to do great things for ourselves and for our staff, and to look at new ways of developing. Um, yeah, there are new collaborative tools, and, and Web Lab certainly would have been much, much harder if we'd have done it three or four years ago, um, because the collaborative tools to allow that development didn't exist. So, using things like Google Docs, where we could all work in real time on a single document, um, mm-hmm. was a completely different way of working. It's not like Word, where I write a document, I send it to you, and you put mark uh, mark changes on it, and then you send it back, and I accept some of those or not, and it goes on to the next person. Um, with Google Docs, you open a doc up and everybody can be writing it at the same time. You can see what everybody else is doing. Um, you can have real-time chat with people while they're doing it. So it becomes a much more collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Now, we, like lots of museums, have an IT department who are quite conservative and um, don't like opening up access to um, to some of those tools. So I got special permission when I was working on WebLab to run a whole load of those tools. It completely changed the way I work, and now what I'm trying to do is get those tools opened up for lots of other people. Um, and even opening things up like Skype calls for people 
is quite tricky. And you know, for us, that's a really big deal because we're a museum in central London, but we have three other museums in the UK, one in Manchester, one in Bradford, and one in York, which are all in northern England, several hundred miles away. So we all spend quite a lot of time on trains, travelling between the sites. Um, and if we, were, if we had efficient desktop video conferencing, we could probably reduce quite substantially that amount of, that amount of intermuseum travelling that goes on. So it isn't just about the things we can do for our visitors. It's about what, how can we change organisationally the way we use technology and what can that bring to us that can make us more effective, um, yeah. you know, can streamline our processes or allow us to do things that actually are just quite difficult to do if you don't use those kinds of tools. Mm. Well, it's very interesting that you mention that because, um, in fact, that sort of takes me to a question uh, someone asked me to, to forward on to you, uh, which is about sort of hesitation about using new technology. Now, in, in this instance, you're talking about your IT department. I think yeah. a lot of people working in museums get pushed back more, even more from curators and yeah. people who aren't even used to working with um, technology. So in your role at the museum as head of new media, how do you communicate new technology available to the curators of exhibitions or coordinators or designers so that they can um, visualize how that new tool can enhance yeah. So, I mean, I think um, yeah, we're probably luckier than most. We're a science, mu science and technology museum. So, um, you know, most of our staff are kind of aware of a lot of this stuff anyway. So it's not, it's not like we're in a, an arts museum where you've got to overcome that technological barrier before you even start. I mean, you know, I think most of the people here are, you know, kind of reasonably up with technology. I think what, what I try and do is we're not, we tend not to use, if we can possibly avoid it, and I have done in the past, and it's quite tricky, very, very new technology. You know, technology that's in the lab or straight out of the lab, because mm -hmm. that's really hard. It can fail really badly. And museums aren't really funded or set up to deal with that level of complexity. Mm -hmm. What we try and do and what I try and push are technologies and techniques that perhaps haven't been seen in museums before, where the technology may have, may have existed for a few years, um, it's just not found its way into museums and the heritage sector, um, and then do things with that. And I, you know, I, I work on um, with the exhibition teams really from the point we start thinking about exhibitions mm -hmm. um, to look at, you know, how we. It, it's basically how we tell stories, um, and sometimes those stories are best told through new media. Sometimes they're best told through an object or a piece of text or a piece of video, um, and I spend. Yeah, a reasonable amount of my time telling people that actually this new media isn't the best way of telling the story. Mm. Um, you know, you have to say you have to push back when it when it seems gratuitous, or there, there, there are better ways. That are you know, don't use technology because they're probably going to be cheaper um, if they mm. don't use technology, and a museum experience that, that that's just ranks and ranks of screens is probably not really a great museum experience. Yeah, ultimately, we what what I want people to do is engage with the objects that we have in the, in the collection. So I want people to to hear the stories those objects tell. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess my ultimate aim would be to make the technology almost disappear. Um, but technology is a great way of being able to tell lots of different stories, of being of allowing the visitors to pace that storytelling, of giving the visitors choice over what stories they have of making the invisible visible in the museum so you can you know you can talk about the process um quite often when you're looking at contemporary science actually the the objects in themselves are not very interesting they're gra mm. you know gray and beige boxes they're computers it's not what they look like that tells the story it's what they do and the life change they make and that's what you have to communicate with people um mm -hmm. yeah so often that is a piece of new media it might be a game it might be a piece of video um it may be some animated diagrams. Yeah. yeah. So it's you know it's it's looking around all the time to see what's out there. It's it's having conversations with colleagues in the museum all the time. It's um, balancing that risk between you know doing lots of stuff that you know you can do and will be successful, and taking some risks on some things that have never been tried before, mm -hmm. because you need to push forward. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know helping people understand what they might get if they make that jump and what the risks associated with that might be if we if we decide to go down that route. 
Mm. Very interesting. Um, so, well, thank you so much. Um, before you go, we do have another student on the line, and I just wanted to give her an opportunity if she had any questions to to add uh, in. Uh, Soli, are you? Yes, yes, I'm back. I'm Hi, sorry. did you have a uh, question? Yep. Yes, actually, um, hi, my name hi. is Solimar, but you can, Solis, fine. Um, I wanted to, first of all, congratulate you on the project. I think it was a great way to have a physical tie-in between the online audience and the physical audience, how online audiences could manipulate what's going on in the museum, per se. Do you have any plans of replicating that project again, or was that a one-time thing? Um, in terms of replication, no, although we, um, as the exhibition has been taken down, we have acquired one of the sketching robots for our well, for, for the museum, um, as has the Cooper Hewitt in New York, um, and we're keen to get that working probably as a standalone experience in the museum, but I think uh, it wouldn't be a sensible thing to replicate WebLab. WebLab is, you know, is about a set of technologies which are very much technologies of the now, and the content matter means it will date really, really quickly, which is why I was quite pleased that we didn't keep it in the museum for longer. Um, in terms of replication of things it did, almost certainly, um, and we're just beginning to think about what that might be, you know, whether that's a, a, another kind of exhibition, uh, whether we can take elements of that and put it into other exhibitions, or whether it's just something increasing that, that just becomes part of all of the exhibitions we do, that we consider that um, you know, in museum and online experience, and we consider that part of that online experience to be a much more physical interaction with the museum. But it's as yeah, as you can imagine, these are these are quite big. Um, you know, to do that is quite a big um, strategic change for the museum, uh, and and it you know takes quite a lot of talking and discussing to to push that through. And museum projects tend to be quite long term. So if, we, if we're doing a large scale exhibition in the museum, that may take two or three years. Um, and, of course, all of the ones that we're doing in the next two or three years are in process already, so it's beginning to start the conversations about what might happen in three years' time um, rather than trying to sort of insert that into something that's going to happen next year. Okay, well then, and that, but that also brings up an interesting point. If you're talking about... Sorry, you're very, very quiet. Sorry? You're, you're very quiet. I can hardly hear you. Okay, hi. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's much better. better. So that brings up another very interesting question. If if you start talking about online projects or digital projects three years prior to when it would actually be, yeah. how do you keep up with technology? Because technology okay. is as critical so, as six months. Yeah, so again, this is why it's all about the content. Actually, the content is everything. What we try and do is not tie down the platforms or the hardware until much closer to an exhibition opening. So pro probably if an exhibition has got a three-year development phase, uh, the first 18 months will really just be looking at the content and the kinds of stories we want to tell. And then, uh, and then uh, 18 months in, we might start to tie down the platforms, the technical platforms we're going to use. And then in terms of actual bits of kit, um, between sort of six months and a year away from opening, and obviously the, the later you can leave that in the process, the better that is, because either there'll be better kit around, you know, higher resolution projectors, or there'll be cheaper, or there'll be new bits of kit that just weren't available when you started to, to think about that. Mm, okay, um, thank you. And, and the other thing that we do that helps with this is we have we have big exhibitions that are um, you know take years to develop, and then we have much smaller exhibitions which have much faster development cycles, uh, and maybe on show for much less time in the museum. So we tend to do much more experimentation in those smaller shows. Um, and then the things that work really well in those, then we, we roll into those bigger exhibitions that are going to be in the museum for a long time. Okay. So at, at the moment we, we, have, um, we have two exhibitions which open the next um, eight to ten weeks. So one is an exhibition about the Large Hydron Collider at CERN. Um, 
And we've worked with a theatre company to develop an exhibition, or a theatre designer and a theatre videographer, uh, to make something that's uh, much more theatrical and experiential. Um, and then the other one is an exhibition about 3D printing. And usually when we, when we open an exhibition, we open an exhibition, then we have a whole lot of programmes for visitors around that exhibition. So might have talks, might have workshops and demonstrations. And they happen once the exhibition's open. Uh, with 3D printing, what we did is we did a whole lot of those programmes before the exhibition. So we ran those over the summer um, because we used those as an opportunity to get visitors to make 3D objects to go into the exhibition. Um, Hello. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, partly because uh, 3D printing in an exhibition just takes too long. It takes a long time to print anything 3D, so people weren't going to be able to get that experience in the exhibition. Um, but we wanted the visitors to be able to do something and have a presence in that exhibition. So really, we had to do that printing beforehand to be able to get it into the exhibition. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, did you have any other questions, Sully? Oh, no, thank you very much for your Okay, time. great. Well, thank you so much, Dave, uh, for joining us. Did you have any comments or last thoughts you wanted to mention before we signed off? I, I mean, I think, you know, there are a couple, couple of, you know, almost mantras that I have, and, that, and that, you know, with technology. So one is um, you, you can predict a level of technological change so you can you can look at what's out there now. You can look at smartphones, and you know that in you know two years' time they'll be twice as fast. The screens will have higher resolution. The batteries are going to last longer, and that you can you can sort of predict that with a reasonable degree of certainty. Um, and that's true of lots and lots of technology. You can you can predict, and you can look at company roadmaps, look at where this stuff is going. What you can't predict are the evolution, are the revolutionary bits of technology that come in, and, and the real game changers. So. Um, you know, predicting Apple moving into the mobile phone market and making such a seismic shift in the smartphone market really, really hard. Um, predicting SMS texting taking off as a major public communication um, technology really, really hard. You know, that was developed as an engineering tool uh, to allow engineers to test um, cell networks. So really difficult to, pre to predict the revolutionary technologies. Um, but and, and the second is that basically this is all new and it's all shifting all the time. And you could it's, you could wait forever for the next biggest and best thing, uh, and you really would wait forever because there's always something that's going to be better in six months' time or a year's time, and you'd never do anything. So you know I actively encourage encourage my staff here and and the museum to just to do stuff, to play, to to try it out, to get things out. Um, that's how you make change. You know, if you always wait for the next best thing, you just you'd never get anything done. So it's really important to to play and experiment and get things onto the floor of the museum and to do that regularly, uh, and not not to be afraid when some of those things fail because some of them will fail. Um, just have a sense of you know how likely something is to be successful or not and make sure that everybody knows if, if it's a very high-risk thing, that people know what the risk associated with it is and you, you know what you're going to do if it doesn't work. Mm. Great. So manage expectations, play, yep. and um, don't be afraid to experiment to until yep. the next game changer comes and revolutionizes how you think. It's a good summation of that. Well, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing well, thank your you for having me. with us. Um, and uh, we will be um, uh, wrapping this up, and there will be other students listening to this later, and, and maybe we'll have some follow-up questions. That's um, fine. If you want to email me anything, there. that's fine. I, I'd just say if you email... Um, Give me a week or so to respond because I do travel around quite a lot and I'm not always. It's not always easy to. If it, if it needs a long response, it's not always easy to do that when I'm travelling. So it may need to wait till I get back to the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much. This was very informative and illuminating, and it's it's really a pleasure for me as a humanist to talk to a technologist that that who is also a humanist and, and understands and scientists and, and, and thinks about storytelling. Um, I think especially, you know, my experience has been really working in art museums uh, 
primarily, and uh, it's always that that struggle to um, balance sort of the, the conservative fear of technology yeah. and um, and an understanding that you know technology isn't just for the sake of technology, but sometimes it can tell a better story uh, or be a better tool for telling the story you want to tell. I, I mean, to, I think that, yeah, the thing to um, constantly remind people, I guess, is technology is just another tool in our arsenal. Yeah, it's another thing like the object, the label, the text, the graphic. There's nothing special about technology. It's one of many things that we can use when we're working in museums. And I think one of the biggest um, the biggest challenges I see at the moment is people uh, putting digital off for something special that they need to do differently and need to consider outside everything else. And I think the sooner we all just Stop thinking as digital is special. It's just one of those tools that we use. I think the better for everybody, really. Uh, which is kind of how your audiences are thinking about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, ultimately, they most of them probably don't care. You know, whether it's a, yeah. you know, what they're interested in is what we can tell them about the objects. And it might be a video. It might be a beautiful object. They want the stories. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Have, have a good Thank day. You. Take care. Yeah, and you too. Bye bye. Bye bye.